This is episode number 291 with founder and CEO at Daisy Intelligence, Gary Sarenberda. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. My name is Kirill Eremenko, data science coach and lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you inspiring people and ideas to help you build your successful career in data science. Thanks for being here today. And now let's make the complex simple. This episode is brought to you by our very own data science conference, Data Science Go 2019. There are plenty of data science conferences out there. Data Science Go is not your ordinary data science event. This is a conference dedicated to career advancement. We have three days of immersive talks, panels, and training sessions designed to teach, inspire, and guide you. There's three separate uh, career tracks involved. So whether you're a beginner, a practitioner, or a manager, you can find a career track for you and select the right talks to advance your career. We're expecting 40 speakers, that's 40 speakers to join us for Data Science Go 2019. And just to give you a taste of what to expect, here are some of the speakers that we had in the previous years. Creator of Makeover Monday, Andy Kriebel. AI thought leader, Ben Taylor. Data science influencer, Randy Lau. Data science mentor, Kristen Kerrer. Founder of Visual Cinnamon, Nadie Bremer. Technology futurist, Publis Holman. And many, many more. Uh, this year, we will have over 800 attendees from beginners to data scientists to managers and leaders. So there will be plenty of networking opportunities with our attendees and speakers. And you don't want to miss out on that. That's the best way to grow your data science network and grow your career. And as a bonus, there will be a track for executives. So if you're an executive listening to this, check this out. Last year at Data Science Go X, which is our special track for executives, we had key business decision makers from Ellie Mae, Levi Strauss, Dell, Red Bull, and more. So whether you're a beginner, practitioner, manager, or executive, Data Science Go is for you. Data Science Go is happening on the 27th, 28th, 29th of September 2019 in San Diego. Don't miss out. You can get your tickets at www.datasciencego.com. I would personally love to see you there, network with you, and help inspire your career or progress your business into the space of data science. Once again, the website is www.datasciencego.com, and I'll see you there. Welcome back to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you on the show. What an episode. What a conversation. I literally just had with Gary Serenverda. This is a mind-blowing podcast. Um, a very refreshing and in very interesting set of perspectives that Gary shared here. So Gary is the founder and CEO of a company called Daisy Intelligence, uh, which does artificial intelligence, has a platform or several platforms that uh, provides artificial intelligence services to mostly retail uh, and insurance and banking industries, and also some other companies such as in the healthcare space. Um, and what I found extremely fascinating about today's podcast is it was different from the, you know, the commonly accepted perspective. So for instance, Gary says that you cannot learn everything from data. You have to start with a theory. And in this podcast, you will learn about the power of theories, 
how and how you can augment your theories with data or use data to find those features in the theories. So it's just so interesting. I can't wait for you guys, for everybody to check it out. And the main thing what I loved about this this podcast is it's different and it's always good to get a different perspective. And this perspective is not just different in as a it's a uh, if it's a philosophically different perspective, Gary actually has results. You know, they've they've made they've worked with thirty plus billion dollar companies in the retail space, uh, making hundreds of millions of dollars of extra revenue for those companies. They've worked with insurance companies and uh, reduced false positive rates uh, massively and added massive value. So he has actual numbers to prove what he's talking about. So, and in a summary, in a quick summary, here's a couple of things that you will learn in addition to that refreshing perspective from this podcast. Um, You'll learn about dangerous implicit assumptions. As we discussed, you'll learn the theory versus data, the power of theories, toy problems versus real world, data problems, product interactions. Gary will talk about his theory of retail, his theory of insurance, his even his theory of theories, You'll learn about two types of decisions. We'll talk about false positives. Uh, you'll learn about the spatial interaction model, uh, traffic flow model, uh, the concept of dividing the world in two and what humans should be doing and what artificial intelligence should be doing and the difference between artificial intelligence that leverages just data versus artificial intelligence that leverages theory and data and what advantages that creates and much, much more. Very exciting podcast. I was literally listening to this with my mouth open half the time. So make sure to check it out and enjoy the perspectives that Gary's about to share. So without further ado, I bring to you the founder and CEO of Daisy Intelligence, Gary Sarenberda. Welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast, ladies and gentlemen. Super excited to have you on the show because calling in from Toronto, we have a very special guest, Gary Seren Verda. Gary, welcome to the Super Data Science Podcast. How are you today? Fantastic, Kirill. Thanks for having me on. I'm looking forward to uh, chatting with you about uh, artificial intelligence. I'm looking forward to it as well. It's it's all my pleasure. Um, and uh, you you mentioned stories that uh, you love to tell the story of how uh, you your company has grown and you know the work that you're doing. And, but even your own story is so interesting already. Like just before podcast, I found out that you are originally from Finland and now moved to Canada or like moved to Canada when you were a child. Um, how do you find combining the two cultures in your life? How does that affect your life? I think, I think, I mean, I grew up in a Finnish home. My parents raised us with Finnish cultural habits. So I think, uh, I think that's really helped Finnish people are, have a strong work ethic and, you know, the North American culture is a working culture. So, you know, I had a lot of success with that. And, uh, and so, yeah, I think integrating cultures, Canada is a great place to live as well. Very diverse and open and, and accepting of all kinds of people. So I think it's been very, it's very easy to be uh, from a different place in, in Toronto, especially because everybody's from a different place here. So very it's great i mean i have the best of both worlds two great countries finland's always in the top five and canada's usually in the top five places to live in the world so couldn't have asked for a better beginning <laughs> that's awesome and is it cold enough for you in canada because finnish people like the cold i hear 
I love the cold and it's not, it's cold enough in the winter time, but the summers it's the extremes. You know, we get, we can have, we might have minus 20 in the winter, but it could be plus 35 in the summer. So I'm not a big fan of the heat and humidity. I, I prefer the cool. I keep mm-hmm. joking with my wife that we're going to move to Iceland because we need to put a data center there somewhere. And she's like, no, no, no. <laughs> I thought that would be a nice halfway between oh, the, the continents. That's nice. Um, in the, in Canada, I don't, actually don't know this. Do you use Fahrenheit or Celsius for temperature? We use Celsius, yeah. I mean, uh-huh. I think the only two countries using Imperial, I think, are United States. And there's one other one that I think the rest of the world has moved over to, moved over to the uh, international standard. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, and uh, in the UK they still use miles though, not not kilometers. But yeah, they do yeah. use Celsius. Okay, well, very interesting. Um, I'm uh, very excited to have you on the show. I actually watched a couple of your videos yesterday where you're uh, talking about artificial intelligence and reinforcement learning, and uh, um, you know, giving some some of those interviews. Very happy. But like, so I got a lot of questions already. But to start us off, could you give us a quick rundown like what's what's your story what uh, is daisy intelligence how did this all start yeah so my i my background is in aerospace engineering so i have a master's degree in aerospace engineering i went to the university of toronto mm-hmm. um, and you know studied computational fluid dynamics and uh you know when i came out of school uh, my you know uh, my friends started a software company so i joined them i didn't you know canada doesn't really have much of an aerospace industry so i didn't want to move to the united states so we stayed in canada and got involved in the software development and uh, ran into some big companies and i was really shocked at how little math and science large corporations used mm-hmm. and uh, compared to what we did in engineering and sciences it's all about math and science so i kind of accidentally walked into this career opportunity to try to bring math and science to business to help businesses operate smarter and in doing so they would increase the profitability the goal is always to drive some kind of increase in sales and profits mm-hmm. and then i know that if a smart company makes more money they don't bank it and give shareholders dividends they'll reinvest it back in price and innovation which impacts consumers so if you help companies be efficient the cost of goods and services go down for you and I and the cost of living goes down and ultimately if you do that everywhere you'll change the world and that's kind of been my mission for the last 25 years and uh, so that's how I started out getting into this kind of world of a bringing math and science to business. Wow that's that's a very cool perspective on how companies can actually help the world and it's it's important to see it that way i think any data scientist and that if you see it that way you're actually doing the world a favor doing making a better place that's really cool okay yeah, so 25, be, yeah. yeah 25 years ago you started this and um what was what was the mission when you started uh to help businesses incorporate mathematics and data science ai in in their work yeah, I first started doing kind of, I, I started doing predictive analytics, you know, statistical analysis. I was really, I think like every, a lot of young people today, I was I was amazed at how there's data correlations everywhere. And I was able to build statistical models to almost predict anything. And you could do that with, I thought, great accuracy. And I worked with a company in Canada that, that runs a, a large coalition loyalty program in retail. And when I, we started doing predictive analytics and were able to get a lot of what I thought were a lot of great results 
results. Every every model we did and every project we applied to direct marketing and uh, likelihood for consumers to buy products, likelihood for people to respond to direct mail and direct email, and and always got you know we said hey we got two hundred percent ROI, three hundred percent ROI, five hundred percent ROI, all these great great results. But then looking at the companies that we were helping, looking at their annual reports, although we were seeing these amazing results from applying predictive analytics, it didn't have an impact on the company annual reports at all. Okay. And I began to realize that, you know, the statistics is really insufficient. Mm. So, you know, predictive analytics doesn't really work to move the needle in business. Sorry, I, I don't understand. How come if you're getting 500% ROI, it's not having an impact? Because it because when you because there's implicit assumption when you build a statistical model that there are no interactive effects. You say I isolate this model. So let's say I'm going to build a model to say which consumer is likely to respond to this product marketing campaign. Mm -hmm. But then you ignore that anybody who responds to that campaign that you assume there's no other interactive effects going on. So there's no effect that happens over time. Mm -hmm. There's no effect that happens with other products. And that's an implicit assumption that you make, and that's actually wildly wrong, especially in a retail where there's massive amounts of interaction. What's an example of a, an interaction that is not taken into account but does affect the end result? Yeah, so let's just say you were uh, you were doing a promotion to promote Coca-Cola, mm -hmm. and so you know on an average week when you don't do a promotion, you might let's say sell a hundred cases of Coke, and then during the promotion you did a direct mail, you emailed consumers, and you doubled Coke sales, mm -hmm. and you go great, look we doubled sales, mm -hmm. the ROI was massive, but then what you don't realize is that you also cannibalized other brands, so Pepsi sales and other cola sales go down, mm -hmm. so you need to net out those negative effects. Right, mm -hmm. so that's a displacement, and then you need to say, well, people forward bought; they bought a two-three-week supply of mm -hmm. Coke, so I stole sales from the future, mm -hmm. and so you net out all of those negative effects. You need to say, did I really create incremental value? Oh, and okay. so, so, so if sometimes you sometimes it does, and sometimes it doesn't. But if you don't measure it on the balance of averages, it'll be the the impact is actually zero. Wow, that is such a interesting thing I actually have never thought of it that way that indeed an isolated data science project while successful might overall for the business not bring as much value and most likely in many cases doesn't bring exactly probably brings less value overall than what it what you measure in the isolation of the project that's a very interesting thought and so, so what was your solution to this um, revelation or realization that you had? So I went back to my engineering principles, right, and started to say, well, when if you're modeling, let's say, a car, you wouldn't model just one aspect of the car and just say, I'm just going to look at the tires in isolation of everything else. You know, you have to model the whole system, and that's what mm -hmm. engineers do. So, so we started to say, let's model the whole company. So build a mathematical model of the company. And I said, then I realized that you couldn't learn that from data either. It's too complex. So we started to build theoretical models, like, like the physics approach, take a fundamentals approach, you know, like the laws of physics. Einstein didn't come up with the theory of relativity from data. He sat in a room and thought about it and came up with a theory. And then once he had the theory, he tested it on the real world. And so that's the approach that science and engineering has applied for more than 100 years. So I went back to my education and said, let's take that approach. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so we came up with, for retail, we came up with a theory of retail and for insurance and banking, a theory of risk. And so we create these theories that are a, are a model of how the world works for that industry. Mm-hmm. And then we, then we use that to solve problems mm-hmm. where the mathematics is created independent of the data. Very interesting. So that is actually a thought that it probably opposes or contradicts what a lot of uh, the guests say on this podcast that you know data is the baseline and that's where we need to start. Everything comes from data and it's, it's really exciting to have a different perspective on the show. So can you tell us a bit more about this though? So like you, rather than starting from the data, I, I to- totally understand this example of Einstein. He didn't look at the data and then came up with the relativity. He, because the data for that doesn't exist. He actually, or didn't exist unless you look for it. He actually sit, sat down and came up with a theory and then uh, the, that went you know from there. So your approach is come up with a theory and then um, reinforce it with data. Is Am I understanding this correct? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you think of, uh, you know, like certainly Einstein had data, you know, he had things like masses of the planets and distances of the planets and the mm-hmm. force of gravity. And, and so you use the historical data or experimental data to calculate features in your theory, mm-hmm. right? So, um, you know, so let's say like you couldn't drive a car with a statistical model. Mm. You know, that's not the case. If you knew the location of every molecule in the universe, knew its mass, position, velocity, acceleration, and knew the history of all of that for all time, you could not learn the laws of physics from that data. Mm. The, the belief that you can learn anything, everything from data is wrong. Mm. And, and, it's, and it's, it's, it feels like it's right because you find correlations everywhere, but correlations aren't causality, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and uh, you know, you, you can find things like, uh, you know, uh, you, you know, ice cream sales is correlated to murder rate. It doesn't mean you should stop selling ice cream, right? And there's correlations everywhere. You know, it's like saying I could correlate the distance from the center of the earth to human population density and find that it's, you know, there's a correlation between distance from the earth and, and population, right? So the, it's all clustered around the surface of the earth. Well, I don't need a statistical correlation to do that. I can just know that people live where there's oxygen to breathe and all the oxygen is at the center of is on the surface of the earth yeah. and it and it declines as you go go up in altitude and therefore the population declines as the altitude increases mm. and that's a strong statistical correlation but it's a the fundamental theory says that people live where the oxygen is mm. and and so that's the different approach so you find the fundamentals that explain the system you're modeling and then create the math from the fundamentals and then test it on the data is my theory does it accurately predict the, the data and experimental results? Mm-hmm. And then you and you can use the data to calculate features. You know, like in the case of retail, we the features we calculate from the data are price elasticity. We know that if you lower the price, people will buy more. Promotional elasticity. If you advertise a product on the television, it'll sell more. We know seasonality. We know that 
consumers buy different products at Christmas than they do in the summertime um, or summertime in Canada because Christmas and summer are different here. You know, we know that uh, if customers buy a product, they buy Halo products. You know, if you buy uh, hamburger, uh, ground beef, you'll to make an Italian dinner, you'll buy pasta and tomato sauce. There's affinities. Mm-hmm. We know that one brand cannibalizes another. We know that there's forward buying. Mm-hmm. You know, so all of these fundamental things you can learn from the data and you calculate those properties and then you put them into the mathematical theory and then solve solve the whole system. Wow. Um, very, very clear. And I actually got a good one for you. Um, in the early 19th, oh, sorry, 20th century, the creator of the P-test and P-values, uh, I think it was Ronald Fisher. Well, we, we all know him as Fisher. Um, he was actually using p-values to prove that not smoking causes lung cancer, but lung cancer causes smoking. You know, speaking of correlations and causality. Um, yeah. Yeah, and it was interesting. Interesting, like as you say, you cannot learn everything from the data. You need some sort of theory behind it and some sort of understanding of how the world works to augment your data explorations. That's a very, very interesting approach. And how does combining theory with the power of data, like using the two rather than just one, how, what kind of advantage does that give you in um, your industry? Well, we calculate the features from the data. So you need the data to calculate properties of the world. Like I said, those things like price elasticity, mm-hmm. promotional elasticity. So you use the data to calculate real facts about the world. Mm-hmm. So it's based on it's a fundamentals approach. You can only really model toy systems with data, mm-hmm. and uh, and and very sim. You can you you can learn simple systems from from you know from real interaction with the world mm-hmm. but when you have like a like so a simple system like would be the game of go right mm-hmm. so in any in any given move a player has maybe less than a hundred possible moves they could make. Mm-hmm. So the number of actions is small. Mm-hmm. The game tree is infinite, but at any moment the 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 number of moves is small. And you know the world, you know how the world perfectly works, because there's a game of rules that are perfect. So if you put two computers to play against each other, you can randomly play and find find uh, you can play 100 million games in an hour if you have enough computing power and you can find sequences of moves that have never been played before you can play more games than all of humankind has ever played with a computer and then is it surprising that we would find better ways of playing if the average person in a lifetime plays go for 10,000 hours and then you play a computer that played for 100 million hours Mm-hmm. Is it a surprise that you lose to the computer? So yeah. I, I think there's a, there's this over exciting thing. Oh my God, it was a major breakthrough. Like we did a, we did a hackathon at the University of Toronto where we played ultimate tic-tac-toe. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with that game. Um, where no, in every, you really. have a tic-tac-toe game mm-hmm. in every in every corner of the tic-tac-toe board. So in every every box there's a, and to win that outer box, you have to win the inner game. Mm. So the game tree is infinite. We played with a bunch of uh, university students. You know, we we opened it up at the University of Toronto, and we created a random a random uh, a player that did 500 milliseconds of random search on a GPU card, 
and just played just randomly made moves and played as and played uh, random sequences to the end of the game mm-hmm. and uh and and so it's completely random player and then that played against the best ideas that students could come up with. So they came up with their best logic and strategies and, uh, you know, the best player, uh, who won the tournament. We had a head to head tournament with about 70 teams mm-hmm. and the, the student team that won didn't lose a single game all tournament long. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then they played the Daisy random bot mm-hmm. and we beat the student a hundred games to nothing. Like, wow. With a 500 milliseconds of random search, mm-hmm. right? So just showing that that you know in toy problems, you know you can you, you can you can do. You, it's not surprising that you can beat the best that a human can come up with. So, so just to clarify, so tic tac toe is the game with the uh, like nine three by three box, and you put the X's and the O's inside, correct? Yeah. Okay. And yeah, then... if you search ultimate tic tac toe, you can see the rules where you you have there's a there's a tic tac toe game in every square yeah. of the outer game, yeah. and to win the outer game, you have to win multi nine inner. You have to you have to win the inner games inside each square. Gotcha. And and, and when you so say that... basically random, doesn't mean that the uh, AI was working at random. That means you gave it 500 milliseconds. So what? That's half a second to do a random search, basically do learning on on how to you know go through lots of different iterations, come up with a if a um, a policy on how to play the game within half yeah, a second. Yeah, but it came up already... with a random policy. Yeah, it was a random policy though. Just decide it decided on its on its next move randomly, uh-huh. so that so so every so the so the policy was just make a random move uh-huh. and assume the opposite opposition player makes a random move uh-huh. and then play out the sequence of games and then find out which which first move had the highest probability of a win when uh-huh. you played randomly okay so it was just purely random so there's like zero intelligence to it yeah. it's like a random and and you know we beat the best that a smart the smart engineering students, some of them <laughs> graduate students, could come up with in 24 hours, yeah. and we called it random bot just because we we wanted to test the game. We weren't actually intending to use it to play, yeah. but then at the end of the tournament, we thought, I wonder how a random bot's going to do against the yeah, yeah. the best of this, the best that the humans could come up with. Because this, we gave the students GPUs, but it was too much for them in 24 hours to yeah. to do that. So so our random bot, you know, killed right, and that the point is that. So that's to, to me says that it's not that the fact that brute force computation beats a human yeah. is not surprising, right? Yeah. So, you know, so the game of Go and the in the chess when you do reinforcement learning, it is an accomplishment, absolutely, but it's not this singularity type accomplishment that people think. There's no, there's very little intelligence in it. It's brute force computing. Right? Mm-hmm. Okay, gotcha. So it would be very hard to transfer something and i think this is actually what um deep mind the company that created AlphaGo uh and alpha zero what they're faced with right now um they are finding that it's extremely hard to transfer those results which are essentially research results into real world solutions like solutions for businesses for um making products making the world a better place in fact uh uh I think, uh, yeah, uh, um, DeepMind in 2017, I think it was, they made a net loss of like 350 million or something like that uh, dollars 
uh, at the bottom line simply because most of what, what they're doing is mostly research which in many cases is not does not really translate into useful products or solutions um so is that is would you agree with that that it's yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the game like so because that game like go or chess or even driving a car, the number of actions you take are so small, you can do you can learn in in simulation. And when you have a and you know, in the case of a car, you have a very good simulation, the laws of classical mechanics, and the games you have rules of the game. So those are toy systems. Mm-hmm. And you can actually learn uh, the, the system can learn in real time playing against each other you play the simulation faster than than time so you can learn quickly but if you look at a game like if you look at the game of retail let's say so if you were to decide if you agree with the concept that customers don't buy products customers buy a use case or a solution so you're buying a meal i'm buying an italian dinner i'm going to buy five products so i'm buying a solution to my desire to make a meal Mm-hmm. Right. So then you know that there's these interactions. So if you buy in the fact that products interact, then then you, then if you have a 50,000 products to promote uh, to, or to choose from and you have to promote 500 products a week for a month, 50,000 choose 2000 approximately, let's say that's 10 to the power of 3600 combinations mm-hmm. to choose from. Well, 10 to the 3600 is more than the number of atoms in the universe. Yeah. You can't do this with labels. There's not enough molecules to create the labels. You can't <laughs> learn that. You can't learn that uh, from interacting with the world because there's too many action states. So that's where you need to build a simulation of the of that of that system and then search that space. And that's where you come up with the mathematical theory first. So the fact that deep learning, doing deep reinforcement learning or deep learning to learn simple supervised learning problems, they apply to very toy situations and and real world systems for the most part, especially businesses, commercial businesses are much more complex, are infinitely more complex than the game of Go. Mm-hmm. You know, the game of Go as a game tree of 10 to the power of, you know, 200 or something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, retail, I just showed you picking products is 10 to the power of 3,600. You know, that's it. So that's an order of, you know, orders of magnitude, mm-hmm. you know more than a thousand orders of magnitude more complex that's the real world and so you can't learn the theory from the data you can't learn it from interacting with the world in real time mm-hmm. that's where you, that's why you need to create this human created theory like einstein did mm-hmm. and, uh, okay so what, what does somebody do like we have a lot of listeners who are building a career in data science. What is your advice for them? Is it to just stop learning reinforcement learning? No, I think you need to take it, you know, look at what, look at measure the actual impact of what you're doing on the toy. If you're in a business and the goal is to make money, does it actually create money? This AB testing, control cell testing, that's that's bogus unless you measure all the interactive effects. Mm-hmm. And there are some problems you can solve with data, right? But, you know, but make sure that you're not ignoring important interactions, that you're not making implicit assumptions that are wrong. Mm-hmm. So make sure that you enumerate all those assumptions and then see, can I still learn this problem from data? Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's an important thing. I think you really look at 
use use the causal theory approach what are the fundamental factors that explain this you know if you look at economics economists create a mathematical theory and then try to apply the theory it's an approach that's been used that we seem to have forgotten about the entire world around us from the chair where both of us are sitting in now Mm -hmm. somebody engineered that they didn't use statistical analysis to design your chair Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they used the laws of physics right Mm -hmm. And so that's worked for over a hundred years. Well, why have we stopped doing that? Mm-hmm. It's because okay. data is everywhere, and we think it's the panacea. And I think the world will come to a screeching halt shortly and say, "You know what? It doesn't actually work." Mm-hmm. Very refreshing. <laughs> I've actually fallen into that pattern myself. That saying data is the panacea and data, you know, is everything. But it's it's really great to hear that that may not be the case. Okay, so laws of physics to design a chair or drive a car, um, laws of biology and chemistry to design drugs and uh, medicine and pharmaceuticals. Uh, what laws for um, business, like for instance, retail, you mentioned a few times. Yeah, so in retail, I mean, so in retail, for example, you know, let's say bricks and mortar retail, it matters where your stores are, right? So putting your stores um, near where the people live, right? So you could optimally design the optimal location for your stores based on the population and where your competitor stores are. So there's a mathematical theory there, mm-hmm. and then you can open up any textbook in in uh, in, in in geographic, uh, the, you know, like in the geography department, spatial interaction modeling that's called, and they have mathematical theories on how to how to do store location. Mm-hmm. Combine that with, you know. When people walk inside of a store, if you put the products at eye level in a shelf that they walk by, they're more likely to buy things at eye level than above eye level or at the floor. Mm-hmm. So there's a theory of planogramming based on the traffic patterns of consumers walking and where the products are. You know, you can come up with a simple traffic flow intercept model based on um, proximity of the items, the number of items on the shelf as a percentage of the total number of items, can I find the product? Simple traffic flow intercept mm-hmm. model mm-hmm. that exists. And then looking at all this interactions, the halos, and you know, so we've assembled mathematical equations from those three things and put them all together. Mm-hmm. You know, people right. won't go buy competitor stores to to buy to save 10 cents on carrots. Mm-hmm. You know, they're not gonna but people will fly across the world to get a free gold bar. Mm-hmm. You know, location matters, you know, mm-hmm. and so all of these are the fundamental concepts. Then we design a theory that a mathematical equations that encapsulate those. And it's not like it's a blank slate, open up a textbook and you can see there's people doing this today, spatial interaction modeling, traffic flow modeling, which is the intercept model, which is customers walking stores. Mm-hmm. So we just put together things that have been done and, you know that's the way the world works. You build incrementally on what's out there. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. And um, what uh, you mentioned retail and well, in fact, Daisy uh, Intelligence works predominantly, as I understand, in retail and insurance, uh, insurance plus banking. Uh, why why did you pick those industries? They're, they're historically the data-rich industries. We have one healthcare client as well. So, I mean, mm-hmm. retail, banking, insurance, telecommunications, manufacturing, government, these are the, the data-rich industries, which means that they're super complex business processes. 
and making decisions about these business processes is beyond human capability. Mm-hmm. It's beyond human capability to pick the optimal combination of products to put in a in a grocery flyer. Mm-hmm. And and you know the humans that do that today, when we measure the the effectiveness of their product selections, it has very little correlation to to store total store outcomes. Mm-hmm. And so we're applying machine intelligence to problems that are beyond human capability. That's the idea. So, and then let people do what people are good at, which is ambiguous thinking, interacting with other people. You know, let's free people up from these nearly impossible, highly repetitive, complex, occurring volumes of millions of decisions a day. Let the machines do that. Let people do what people are good at. And so that's why, you know, retail has a huge volume of data, banking, insurance, huge volume of data. And there's complex interactive effects mm-hmm. and, and that take place. Although that's why we picked those. And then healthcare, you know, obviously uh, that's another interesting industry as well. Okay. And what kind of results are you seeing with, uh, with these industries? In, in retail, it's insane. So we've been able to grow total company sales by, you know, we've seen on an average of 3% with kind of half change management completed. The human change management is the big challenge, but with about with about 40% of our decisions being implemented, we've been getting 3% sales lift, comp store sales, which is how retailers measure how did this store do this year versus last year. We've done that for companies with sales of over $30 billion. So we've grown their sales by $1.5 billion. And oh, wow. in, in retail, retail typically is a 1% net margin business, grocery retail. Mm-hmm. So growing sales 3% means we doubled their net income. Like open the annual report, go to the very bottom line on the income statement. And if that number last year was a uh, 100 million, then this year it'll be 200 million. Mm-hmm. That That's what the result we've had. Because wow. it's common sense. If you build a theory based on the fundamentals, mm-hmm. it works, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's insane. When you say three percent doesn't sound as impressive, but when you say you grew three by you grew sales by three percent of a thirty billion dollar business, yeah. and then also if you look at the net income, basically that flows down into doubling their net income from a hundred million to two hundred million, as an example. That is insane. Those are amazing results. Yeah. And, that, and if you go look at some of the other statistics vendors, their value statements don't make sense. You know, mm-hmm. when you say, I grew sales 10%. Well, if you grew sales 10% of the whole company, mm-hmm. you'd have like quadrupled their profit. You would say, I grew profits by 400%. But because you're not saying that, that means you did an A-B test you grew this category by 10% compared to what you did last week or last month or in market A versus market B. You ignored all the interaction effects mm-hmm. and maybe it ha- maybe nothing happened. Mm-hmm. Maybe mm-hmm. something happened, but you don't know because you, you didn't measure that, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So tell me then, you when a company, a new retail company comes to you and says, um, uh, Gary, uh, would you be able to work with us? When, what is your first step to do the due diligence? So what are the steps that you take? Like, how do you assess whether or not you can help a specific client? Uh, what What are the requirements? I'm just curious of like how you think as a consultant or as somebody who's about to go in and change, make massive changes to the business's uh, profitability. 
Yeah, well, I mean, so we have a product, right? So we, we sell a shrink wrap product. There's no human in the loop in our product. And oh. ultimately, in the long run, there's no human in the loop on the client side. I think retail will ultimately be retail planning. A lot of it will be automated and done autonomously. Um, but, uh, you know, so we go into the client. We The first, you know, what we've learned having done about 25 retail clients is that we need to assess the client's willingness to change. Uh-huh. If you believe that the future of retail is not the same it is today and you're ready to change and you want to change, that's the first test. Because if you're not willing to change the way you do things, if you don't believe that a machine could do better than your people, then we're going to have an uphill battle. And so we're lately starting to qualify and ask that question. Will you trust a machine to make seriously important decisions for your business? Mm-hmm. And if you don't, if you're not willing to give that a shot, then we're going to have an uphill battle. And so we'll at that moment stop selling to that customer. Mm-hmm. Once they say, "Yeah, we're all in. We want to be a retailer of the future. We want to move in the direction like like Amazon does today," then great. Then we take historical data. We take you know, as many years of historical transaction data that has every single transaction in bricks and mortar and online and and that historical data, because from that we learn all of the features of our theory, you know, all the things I talked about, Halo and elasticity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we need all the history to do that. We want to see, you know, to get seasonality, you need multiple years of data to see seasonal patterns. Mm-hmm. And then you'll also have all the external effects in that data, you know, the external, how the competitive effects, macroeconomic effects. So having a long history of data gets us all of that and allows us to calculate all these features that are kind of on average with respect to external impacts. Mm-hmm. And then from that, we feed the, we have our theory, we, we test our theory against the client's data, we go, look, it works, and so far it's worked at every single client that we've done it at because it's based on fundamentals, and it takes us about a month to initialize the system, and then we start delivering decisions. We say, hey, next week you should promote these 100 products and here's the prices. And then the clients will start to execute it, test it. We'll measure the impact, show them the financial results. It takes typically three to six months to start to see financial results. And then we fight this change management battle uh, to, to get them to buy into it and then maybe change the role of the merchant in the future. So the people who do this for a living, they should half of their job should be given to a computer and they can focus on the other half of their job. You know, that's the challenge. Mm -hmm. Okay. So going in and getting all this data from the client allows you to tailor your platform. So it's a platform that you offer, not just a consulting service. It's a platform. Yeah. It's a pre-built platform. We don't, we're not a consulting shop. We have, it's a SaaS. We're a SaaS company. Mm -hmm. The, the, The product is built. We just feed the data in. That's the only part because, because every customer's, uh, the properties of the data, you know, so it's like the, you know, you know, the, you know, the force of gravity is different on every planet. So every client is like another planet, mm. the mass of the, so we use the data to measure the mass of the planet, the force mm. of gravity. Is it the same universe? We measure halo, cannibalization, seasonality. Those all vary slightly from client to client. And so mm. the historical data lets us calculate those features that we then put into our laws of laws of retail. Yeah. <laughs> laws of retail. I love it. Uh, I'm a bit surprised that you, with such a powerful system, um, have, uh, you said, mentioned, I think, only 25 retail clients. I'm assuming these are large players that you've handpicked, selected. Um, but 
which have you thought of making this a self-serve platform where people like uh, any retail store could come onto your website and say, hey, I, w- I want to subscribe to this and, and then feed in their data themselves? Like wh- what is the what is the gap? There's like a gap of knowledge, a gap of um, commitment from from customers that they will or, you know, that they won't be able to feed in the data themselves. Yeah, it's a, it's a system. I mean, I've learned that customers, clients can't manage very complex systems. And mm-hmm. so this is a super complex system. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we manage the system for them and help them with the recommendations. The challenge is the change management. And so we're, you know, we're, we're growing. We've, you know, tripled, tripled, doubled in the last three years as a wow. company. And we plan to double, double, you know, our goal is to be the next Google, next mm-hmm. Apple. You know, that's, you know, I don't want to sell the company. I want the Daisy brand to be up there because I know if I achieve those heights, then we'll have changed the world for the better. That's you know, awesome. that's the company mission. And you already so, got, uh, congrats, like last year you got, I see on your website, the Gartner Award for Cool Vendor for 2018. That's really cool. Yeah, we got recognized cool vendors. So, you know, they're seeing us have an up and coming. So, yeah, I mean, so people don't know we exist. So we're making a lot of, getting a lot of interest in the company based on the results. And it's challenging for, for retailers, you know, the retail employees to say, hey, a machine can pick products better than a human can. Yeah. And I'd say, well, it's not that surprising. We can put men on the moon and we can fly spaceships to Pluto. You think <laughs> we could pick optimal prices or optimal product combinations? <laughs> you know, I'd say it's not a stretch. So we're bringing like NASA-like technology to business. And Yeah, with your aerospace background, right? Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. awesome. That's awesome. Wow, fantastic. Well, we talked a bit uh, a lot about retail and I think this is amazing and I'm really happy to have you on the podcast at this time before like this goes huge and with that kind of growth. It's just a matter of time if you're doubling and tripling your business every year. It's just a matter of a couple of years before you hit that exponential uh, kink and you're just up there. And uh, what that means, why I'm happy is because for the sake of our listeners, if anybody's in retail, if you're a business owner or executive or you know an executive, I have a strong sense that this could be a big game changer. So, And this would be a, a great time to jump early on board. So, Absolutely. Cool. Yeah, give us a call if you're a retailer. If you're an insurance company, we can help you eliminate fraud. Uh, and then uh, let's you talk know, about insurance. That's yeah. like we talk about retail. Like, what do you do in insurance? Because it's such a different world to retail. It's you know, there's two types of human decision making. Mm-hmm. One is what are the inputs that get the desired outcome? You know, so what decisions do I need to make that result in the best outcome? And so that's kind of what we're doing in retail. And there's mm-hmm. the laws of retail in the middle. Mm-hmm. I put these inputs into this system and I get this output. Mm-hmm. And then I try to optimize that. Mm-hmm. And then another type of decision is, is this different than the, is this different than the normal? So when you go to a doctor, the doctor takes your blood test and goes, oh, these readings are different. You're sick. So being an outlier means you're sick. You could be a high risk mm-hmm. uh, credit lender. Fraud is an outlier. Crossing the border, you're it could be an outlier, which you mean might mean you're a terrorist. Tax audit, outlier. So those are the two types of decision making. Are you different than the norm? Mm-hmm. And what it inputs get the maximum outputs. And in mm-hmm. fact, every business is a combination of those two things. Mm-hmm. Some businesses are more more of this interaction effect versus outliers and some business are more outliers versus interactions. Mm -hmm. And so in in insurance, we identify what are the fraudulent transactions or claims 
who are the fraudulent people and who are the fraudulent networks of people and we identify those and, and you can't do that with predictive analytics mm-hmm. you know that's a that's a misnomer and we see i see a lot of f- false statements about the ability of prediction to to identify fraud or other rare events you know Mm-hmm. Okay, so again, you you created a platform. I'm assuming which uh, yeah, uses a the- platform. Theory? Yeah, we have a theory of risk mm-hmm. um, that that we create. We've got we've uh, we have a, we're filing we filed patents on our theory of retail stuff. We're fi- filing patents on a theory of risk. We're filing patents on how to create theories for business. Nice. You know, so you can stay tuned to those things. <laughs> the theory and, uh, of theories. I love it. Yeah, and uh, and because there's a way to do this, and then. And, uh, and, and in insurance, you know, the idea of predictive analytics being used to identify uh, f- fraud. And I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit So, because it's important yes, because of the mishype out there. So, so let's say you built a deep learning model to identify fraud that was 90% accurate. And we see claims that are, you know, 95% accurate. So let's say 90% for round numbers. Mm-hmm. It was 90% accurate at detecting fraud. And let's say you have a million claims. Mm-hmm. And of those claims, 1% is fraud. Mm-hmm. So of the million, 1% or 10,000 is fraudulent. Correct. Yeah. So because 90% accurate, I got 9,000 of the 10,000 correct, right? Mm-hmm. So I made it got 1,000 wrong. Mm-hmm. But in the 990,000 that weren't fraud, mm-hmm. I also got 10% wrong there. So I got 99,000 wrong <laughs> in the not fraud. The full So actually, right? I got 9,000 right and a yeah. hundred thousand wrong. Yeah. So my accuracy is not 90%, it's actually 8%. Yeah. And in fact, when you're predicting rare events, you have a massive false positive rate, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? And that's okay if you're doing direct mail because the cost of getting it wrong in an email marketing campaign, who cares? You're just carpet bombing the world. But if you're <laughs> wasting money on doing investigation or go to YouTube and look up false positive braking events in autonomous cars, right? I won't mm-hmm. pick any brand of car because I don't want to I don't want to crap on anybody, but look at false positive braking events in cars and you'll find people who drive uh, kind of these electric cars with the uh, driving aids that there's a lot of false positives. And you'll find videos of of cars not even stopping while they plow into a stationary target because there's so many false positive that come up in the braking systems that the that the manufacturer dials those systems way back because mm-hmm. prediction it's not a prediction problem it's a physics problem mm-hmm. and and uh, and so any model predicting rare events and guess what any event worth predicting is rare which is basically every event like <laughs> image detection mm-hmm. you know when you you know you do you know images of cats versus not cats well if I was driving a car, what percent of Im- a percentage of images would have a cat in them? A tiny fraction, yeah, yeah. even less than one percent. So it's even more of a rare event. So it would be even worse than the than the math I quoted to you before. Yeah, I'm 97 percent accurate at predicting a 0.01 percent thing, which means my false positive rate's 99 percent. So it means I'm actually terrible at predicting a cat. Wow, wow, that's so such an interesting perspective. And so how how does your product differ in that sense? We we take a different approach. We look for outliers in fraud, so it's a rare event, but we're looking at 
what is the outlying behavior? Um, is this does you know looking at all the attributes about a claim about people about networks of people and say is this claim we compare this claim to every claim we've ever seen before? So if you have a hundred million claims a year, we look at ten years of claims. We say how does this claim stack up to the previous billion I've seen? How does it stack up to claims that occurred in Toronto versus uh, versus claims in other cities? How about claims for a car accident of this brand of car in the wintertime? Does that look normal with respect to a claim? Mm -hmm. And the more you the more peer groups that you compare the claim to, you'll find if it's an outlier. So if I had a thousand attributes that I'm comparing to, and each of them that was only one percent accurate, right? Mm -hmm. So, so it was 99% wrong. A thousand to the power of, or 0.99 to the power of a thousand is zero, which means that if I'm monitoring outlying behavior on a thousand attributes, there's a 0% probability that I will get it wrong at identifying it as an outlier if I look at the total set. Mm -hmm. And so we use very sophisticated math to do outlier detection because statistical outlier detection doesn't work because everything's an outlier in high dimensional data. So we use uh, type one fuzzy logic as a, as a method and, and uh, we use some prediction and rules, but we use those to use the output of predictive models in a completely different way, which I don't want to talk about yet because I haven't filed the patent. So call me, <laughs> Makes call me in six months and I'll tell you about exactly how we do that. But it's, it's combining every technique, rules, prediction, peer analysis, and social networking. And if a, if a person is fraudulent and, and all four of those methods agree, then the likelihood of it being a false positive is slim. So using every mathematical method possible, if all the methods agree that there's something odd going on, then the false positive rate is lower. Okay, okay. And what kind of results does this allow you to bring to your clients? We've been saving. So on average, we see in most insurance companies anywhere between in healthcare insurance, which we've worked a lot in, we think 15% to 30% of claims have some element of fraud or abuse. So we found millions of dollars of um, claims that haven't been found before. The challenge in insurance is that there's human investigators that look at every fraud alert. So we're trying to convince our clients to say, hey, you need to let the machine make the complete decision and don't put a human in the middle. Mm. So our some of our clients can look at 100 fraud alerts a month mm -hmm. and while we can find a hundred alerts a millisecond mm -hmm. so we need to let we need to let the machine make some of the decisions so we're working with our clients to say let the autonomous machine make the decision on whether we should process this or not take the human out of the loop and then we'll find that you know in a billion dollar business you'll find a hundred million dollars of fraud and abuse and we want to eliminate that and uh so, so that's the challenge, and, and that's like the change management is human beings look at every fraud alert and every risk alert, and we need to let the machine do it. So there has to be that that change again. Do you trust the machine to run a significant part of your business? And that, that businesses aren't there yet. That's the huge world change that's going on right now. Mm. Wow. <laughs> I'm just finding myself like listening to this. Uh, literally with my mouth open. This is such fascinating stuff. Um, so retail and insurance sounds like you got those two covered. Um, you mentioned an interesting thing. You mentioned that uh, you want to take the human out of the loop. And in one of your online videos, I uh, heard you talking about 
how answering the question, will AI replace humans? I found it very interesting. Could you, could you also uh, share your thoughts here? Like, if you take the human out of the loop in retail, in insurance, and in many other industries, what does this have? What kind of future are we looking at? It's, I think it'll just change the job role. It won't eliminate the role of the person. So I'd say divide the world in two. Use computers to solve problems that are beyond human capability. So that means we're helping humans, right? And then let, let people do what people are good at. Strategy, human interaction, creativity. And we shouldn't apply technology to replace people. So I say we're going to change the role of the person. But you can't let the, the machine intelligence on its own. You still need to have human oversight. And the human beings will say, here's the strategy. So when I work with our retail clients, the retailers say, this is our business strategy. We want to be number one in, in produce and meat. You know, So make sure that your system that achieves that goal. We want to always be the lowest price in the market. So we will give you, we want you to manage uh, competitor price data and make sure that you make recommendations that were the lowest price in the market. And then, you know, they give those kinds of strategy rules. So the human trains the AI with the strategy. And then the AI says, okay, I'm not, I'm agnostic to your strategy because you have a brand and a strategy that your company has decided that that's what you want to be. Then the AI will help you make decisions within your strategy so it's a relationship between people people own the strategy and they over keep oversight on the system to make sure that if there's any exceptions the humans deal with exceptions and then now the people can be freed up to work on other things where people are very good at and we shouldn't use technology to solve problems that people are good at like I'm against customer service robots that's what people do, you know. I'm against right. replacing waitresses and order order things and waiters with with automated ordering systems. I mean, that's what people do. We don't want to unemploy people. How the heck's the what's gonna happen to the world? You know, we're we can't all sit around and do nothing. There's gonna be nobody to make the money to buy the products and services. So I, I think I think a lot of the AI hype has been academics getting a PhD in image detection because that's was easy to do and thinking there's a business there and they bring that to the market without thinking of the bigger consequences uh -huh. I, right I think the ethics are more in the application of AI than in the than in this data bias which I think which I think is a red it's a, that, that that's only an issue if you use data to build theory if you if, if you come up with fundamental theories there's no there's no bias in the laws of physics you know uh -huh. yeah yeah okay I see what you mean um, and similar I guess to what you were saying uh, before that uh, as a data scientist uh, you should not only look at your system in isolation but the overall effect on the business uh, same thing here uh, AI applications should be valued not just in how much you know what kind of impact they have in that specific application but overall what is the ethical what are the ethical considerations and uh, to your point that you know replacing waiters and waitresses with artificial intelligence uh, might reduce costs but on the other hand for me personally I prefer to interact with a human like I, I, I like that social aspect social component and I would probably miss that if all I was doing is walking around every day all day long and talking to robots and yeah you know, being the who are super efficient I, I like that humans make mistakes sometimes that's that's part of being human 
Yeah, and I think that's the, you know, divide the world into what is, you know, again, what is beyond human capability, like flying to the moon, you, you know, we don't like, we don't try to run to the moon, we, you know, there's no doubt, you know, using technology to solve that problem where we're augmenting our ability and projecting ourselves somewhere where we would otherwise not be able to go, you know, or and let people do what people are good at. That's the dividing line for us. And so Daisy's mission is to let people achieve their maximum capability by focusing them 100% on people problems and let's use machine intelligence to tackle the business problems that are beyond a human's capability. That's the, that's our mission. And if we do that, we'll change the world because if we augment human capability, it'll create profitability which will be reinvested back and lower the cost of goods and services. That's that's the simple theory that I have and what I see happening today, successful businesses reinvested back in, which serves humanity better. Fantastic. Um, I am so fascinated by all these things that you shared. I'm actually real curious. What what is a person with such interesting perspectives as yours? Uh, what is a person uh, like that read? Like what's what's a book that you can recommend to us that you've read recently or that you really like so i i would personally i really highly value a recommendation coming from you yeah i've been reading a lot of books on business culture i think businesses like our business succeed based on our employees and our people although we're building technology it's still a people world so i mean i've some of my favorite business books i've read are good to great mm -hmm. um you know that's uh, or you know, like a or or was it built to last? It's a it's a great book about how you know successful companies and their culture. Mm -hmm. And recently, lect, read a book about uh, about uh, legendary leadership. You know, which is by uh, uh, Dan Lapin. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, I think that's a great book on how to build like you know you know really powerful cultures and and how to how to inspire employees to buy into a mission. You know, and mm -hmm. I think. I think those are great business books and then i i'm a geek so i read physics textbooks and <laughs> watch you know i i'm reading i'm reading semi romanian geometry right now that's kind of wow kind of a book for fun that uh, you know because we're trying to lay some theoretic more theoretical underpinnings to what we do uh, uh you know trying to trying to up our our game when i someday write a textbook about what we're doing so Fantastic. Well, thank you. Thank you for, for that list. We'll include all those in the show notes if anybody's interested. Um, and sadly, this actually brings us to the end of the podcast. I would have loved to continue talking about all these things and hopefully maybe you can one day come on the show again or maybe we'll meet in person. But I just want to say had a lot of fun uh, learning from you and understanding this very re different and refreshing perspective. And before I let you go, please, could you share with us where can our listeners find you if they want to maybe connect with you, um, follow you, or if there's anybody in the in our audience who would love to consider doing some work with you and find out a bit more about Daisy Intelligence. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me on your show, Kirill. I really enjoyed it. I love talking about what I do. Um, you can find me on LinkedIn, Gary Sarenverda. You know, so if you look up the spelling of my name when you post this, Sarenverda, that's one. And you can, uh, our company is DaisyIntelligence.com, so you can uh, you can connect with us there and uh, happily chat. We're always looking for people who believe in our mission, who want to change the world, and, and customers who want to move to the future. You know, we're there to there to interest uh, and help them and anybody who 
wants to chat about this more, feel free to reach out. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a something we need from a grassroots level to change this discussion that's ongoing. And I'm happy to talk to anybody who wants to participate in that as well. Fantastic. Well, there we go. DaisyIntelligence.com. Make sure to check it out and connect with Gary on LinkedIn as well. Once again, Gary, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And I, I can't wait to see like how your business grows. I, I, it feels to me like you're going to do great things. Thanks a bunch. Appreciate it. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for being part of our conversation today with Gary. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did and got all the valuable insights that Gary was sharing with us. If you're interested in working with Daisy Intelligence, then make sure to check them out at daisyintelligence.com. Actually, they have a 100% ROI guarantee, and I double-checked with this with Gary, and that is indeed the case, so it's pretty crazy. So especially if you're in the space of retail or insurance, I would be running to give Gary a call and get my hands onto this platform. As always, you can find the links to all the materials mentioned on this episode, including the URL for Gary's company and the URL for his LinkedIn at the show notes, which are located at www.superdatascience.com slash 291. That's superdatascience.com slash 291. And finally, if you enjoyed this podcast and if you got valuable insights, valuable perspectives from it, then don't just keep it to yourself. Share it with somebody who you know or who you think will also find this valuable. Maybe you know somebody in the space of insurance or the space of retail or somebody who's interested in AI and thinks that everything should be just data-driven. Well, Gary's perspective is that theories are very important too and challenging your belief systems is always a good, valuable exercise. So I encourage you to send this episode to somebody who you know will be challenged by the insights here and on that note thank you so much for being here today i really appreciate you being part of the super data science community and i look forward to seeing you back here next time until then happy analyzing <laughs>